Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 14 this morning. And forgive me if I continue to say this evening, we've recently switched our service to the morning. Hebrews 13, you'll find this on page 1009 in the Pew Bible. We've been working our way through Hebrews. We come to chapter 13, which is a long list of short exhortations or uh, short imperative statements or commands, last instructions. The writer uh, wants to lay on them some things as he wraps things up. We've seen most recently in verses 1 to 4, the command that we are to love people. But then at verse 5, we are not to love money. In fact, we are to be content with what we have because of the promise. We can do this only through the promise, trusting the promise of our God. When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, he says to us, you may not have money, but you have me. You may not have many possessions, but you have my promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What else do we have and how should we live in light of what we have? That's what I want you to think about from the passage before us in Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 7. What do we have and how do we live in light of that? This is the word of God. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would cause us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we would more and more be able to test and discern what is your good and perfect will, and so live in light of your truth. And we ask this by your mercy. So be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you have? We have an unchanging Christ, verses 7 through 9. We have a divisive cross, verses 10 through 12. And we have an abiding 
city, verses 13 through 14. Let me walk you through these things he says that we have. In the first place, we have an unchanging Christ. You'll see this in verses 7 through 9, particularly the heart of it, verse 8, where he says to us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And of course, this is the Jesus you have if you trust in this Jesus. Now, verse 8 comes between verse 7 and verse 9, not just numerically, I think we all understand that, but also as the foundation of both of what he commands in verse 7 and what he commands in verse 9. So think this through. Verse 7, what does he tell us to do? He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, verse 7 here has a lot to say about Christian leadership. He's going to come back to that theme at verse 17, and so we're going to have more to say about it from this passage and verse 17 when we hit that. But just notice a few things here. He's talking about the first generation of Christian leaders who have now gone into heaven. In other words, he, he says they finished their race. They've kept the faith. They spoke to you the word of God past tense. He's thinking of of how God spoke the gospel to us through the Lord and chapter 2 verse 3 mentions and then his disciples brought that word to us the hearers of Hebrews some of them had met those 12 disciples commissioned to proclaim that word they're gone now continue to remember them he says remember them because they spoke what the word of God to you. In other words, their ministry wasn't their own idea. It wasn't their own opinion. They gave to you the very word of God. They were teaching you the gospel. They were teaching you God's Bible. It wasn't their idea. Christianity isn't man's best efforts at thinking about what God must be like or what he cares about. Christianity is God himself revealing to us what he thinks. And notice he says that these leaders' lives were consistent with what they believed. Consider the outcome, he says, of their way of life. And he wants us to practice what they preached. But not by just simply aping their behavior, by going, oh, look, did you see how he lived? I should just go do the same thing. But no, but by imitating their faith. It was the faith that produced a kind of life. He wants you to have that faith so that in your life it bears fruit. And what is that faith in? Verse 8, this is your connection. Your faith is in just like their faith. It is in Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now notice, while he is the same, always, these leaders have come and gone. They've lived and they've died. They've passed off the scene. The Hebrews shouldn't attach themselves too closely to their former leaders. You have instead Christ who never leaves you or forsake you. You are to look back in gratitude upon those leaders, certainly, but they are gone. Jesus, however, is not gone. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what he's doing is he's pointing them to their ever available and unchanging Savior. Stay with Jesus. He's the same even into the ages. You need this and I need this because the way forward for us is unknown. It's uncertain to us. But Jesus, who is our faithful Savior, 
will be to us in the future as he has been in the past and as he is in the present. He is the same in the sense of his fidelity to us. He isn't fickle. He doesn't fluctuate. He's faithful and he's constant, even though everything around us is change and decay. The Haddon Robinson, the preacher, tells the story of the clock in the town hall of the, uh, the Copenhagen Denmark, there's this clock there. It's uh, the world's most complicated clock, I'm told. It has 10 faces. It has 15,000 parts. It took over a million dollars to build over the course of 30 years, and it is accurate to two-fifths of a second every 300 years. It computes the time of day, the day of the week, the months and the years, the movement of the planets, The fastest gear completes a revolution every 10 seconds and the slowest every 25,753 years. Some parts of it won't move for 25 centuries after it was completed being built. Yet even though it took 30 years to build and it is so accurate, the outstanding characteristic of it, says Haddon Robinson, is that it is inaccurate and it's weak it loses two-fifths of a second every 300 years and every week it must be wound up by man but hebrews is saying jesus christ is the same and he doesn't slip with the passage of time you don't have to wind him up to keep him going or to meet you in your future This is what we need. He is who we need. And as we walk out of here into our futures, that is so uncertain for us, we can bank on an unchanging Christ. Now notice at verse 9, he goes on to say that we've got to resist the pull of strange teaching. Do not, he says, be led away by diverse and strange teachings, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. What's he saying? Well, there was a lot of strange teaching going around in the Christian community, even in the earliest days of the church. We don't know exactly what the strange teaching was, but we know that he says what sustains you is the strength of God's grace. Foods, he says, aren't going to make that much difference for you. Whether you give up mashed potatoes Monday through Friday isn't going to make that big a difference in your relationship with God. It's not going to matter much whether you conquer sin or not. It's not going to have a great deal of difference in whether you live a Christian life successfully, so to speak, or not. What you eat may be important to your physical health, but it is not important In your relationship with God, which is established not on what you eat, but on Christ and his grace. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8 says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. J. Vernon McGee says a special diet is not going to make you a super duper saint. And it's just not. It's not about, though, just food here. 
What's going on? You've got folks, some folks who are thinking, I need Jesus, plus I need to keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws about diet. Or I need Jesus, but I've also got to go to the temple and partake of the old animal sacrifices and also eat that food and keep up both believing in Jesus and these other things. It's all about here adding something to Jesus some, uh, whether it's a new technique or some sort of discipline or something we add in order to be more victorious. But, but we don't need some new Christian fad or Christian gizmo. It is, he says, grace that strengthens the heart. Grace keeps the Christian's heart steadfast. It is good, he says, for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And so you and I need to beware of forgetting that it is the unchanging Christ and his grace that keeps us on our feet. John Bunyan, in his book Pilgrim's Progress, and I've told you about the book before, it's one of the most widely uh, published and distributed and read Christian books. And as I've mentioned before, I have a, I've had a hard time plowing through it. I've been working my way, trying um, but there are some fascinating stories in it. And one Christian a pilgrim arrives at interpreter's house. In interpreter's house, interpreter shows him a number of things, including a man standing in front of a fire, the fireplace, throwing water on it. But the fire won't go out. It kept growing higher and hotter. How do you explain that? Interpreter took Christian around, showed him behind the wall, and there was a man stooped down behind the fireplace shooting oil into the fire from the back. What does this mean? Well, he said, the one who's out front dashing water is the devil seeking to douse the work of grace on the Christian heart. And the one behind shooting oil into the fire is Christ himself who maintains the work of grace in the Christian heart by giving the oil of his grace. He's behind the wall because it is as if he does it secretly and not even sometimes the Christian himself or the Christian herself is aware of the fact that he is stoking that fire to keep it going to make it higher and hotter. You and I, we need to know that before trouble comes in our experience. It's not some new Christian twist that's going to hold us up when trouble comes. It is the grace of Jesus, and it is well for the heart to be strengthened by grace, by Christ, who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's saying, verse 7 and 8, or seven and nine, don't be led astray by unsound teaching from unfaithful leaders who are not feeding on the grace of Christ, but follow the sound teaching of faithful leaders who are eating the grace of the unchanging Christ and feeding you that grace. Now, second. Notice we have not just an unchanging Christ, we have a a divisive cross. A divisive cross, verses 10 through 12. We have, he says, verse 10, an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. 
What is an altar? Well, it's like what he's saying here is like when somebody says when when uh, when they say about you that you keep a good table, meaning when they go to your house, you're going to get some good chow at their table. There's going to be good food there. The table stands for what's on the table. We have an altar. An altar is the place of sacrifice. These are Jewish Christian believers he's writing to. And it might be thought that if they are Christians, they no longer have any sacrifice. And he's saying, you're wrong. You do. We have an altar. We have a place of sacrifice. What does he mean by it? He means Golgotha. He means the cross. See, what he's saying is there are still some in that day still serving in the standing temple of Judaism carrying out the sacrifices. And of course, in the Old Testament, one of the ways that uh, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem, you know, made his living is that he carried out these sacrifices and after the blood was uh, used for its holy purposes in the temple and after portions of the carcass were destroyed in other ways, some of the meat, even some of the best parts of the meat, whether of a a lamb or a goat or cattle, what what have you, that that was going to be food for the the pastor, food for the priest, food for the, the man's family even. And here he's thinking about that priesthood and eating those foods. And he says, this is fascinating, he's thinking of us now, his hearers who believe in Jesus as priests. He says, we, likening us to priests, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. You, brothers and sisters, you are a kingdom of priests. And just like they ate during the times of the Old Testament from the sacrificial altar in the temple, so we, as a kingdom of priests, we have an altar from which we derive food that nourishes us. What is that food? It's not animal meat. It is Christ and his grace. God's final sacrifice for sins has come in a Jewish crucified Messiah. And what they needed to do was to accept him as the final sacrifice for sins and not go on continuing to slaughter the lambs. But rather to embrace this once and for all sacrifice of the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But as long as they cling to the old way, they're not benefiting from the new. They don't benefit from Jesus like believers in Jesus do as long as they cling to the old. Why? Verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What's that getting at? He's thinking of the sin offerings particularly, even perhaps the Day of Atonement offerings, from which nobody ate any of the meat, but rather the blood of the sin and Day of Atonement offerings. The blood was brought into the tent to show that the judgment of God, the judgment of death due to sinners was carried out upon the sacrifice as a substitute for the offerer or even for the nation. And then the body of the animal was taken outside the camp to be burned. 
in order to show the, the alienation, the rejection, the excommunication, the punishment sinners deserve because sinners are unclean. Outside the camp is the place of rejection and punishment. If you go back into your Old Testament, whether in Numbers 5 or Leviticus and various places, you, know, you might remember that lepers and people who had unclean bodily discharges and, and uh, people who were unclean in other various ways, they had to live outside the camp. They couldn't come into the camp. They had to live outside, excluded, though temporarily for many. There, there was ways they could be brought back in. And others were taken outside the camp. And who were they? Those who were due to suffer capital punishment for their crimes. They were executed outside the camp, not in the camp. And so he says Jesus suffered where? Not in the camp, but outside, outside the gate, outside the city, outside the temple to show that he became unclean for us, that we could become clean before God in him. He goes out so that we can go in. He becomes unclean so that we can become holy. He is excluded so that we can be included. He was punished so that we could be pardoned. And so he's saying the cross is divisive. It divides, it separates those who reject Jesus and his sacrifices. He says have no right to eat from the altar of God's grace. But those who receive Jesus and his sacrifice on their behalf, they are set apart as God's people through the offering of his blood. And so they are nourished on God's grace. And so this table before us this day, this communion table, it's not an altar of sacrifice. We are not crucifying Jesus again or in any way as if such a thing could ever be done. But we are remembering and proclaiming his once and for all death on our behalf until he comes. And we come to the table to eat and drink, to feed, to be nourished by him, to strengthen our union and communion with him and with one another that we have only in him and by his grace. And this is received not through the mouth just by simply partaking, but it is received through the instrument of faith, which is the mouth of the soul, so to speak. And so because the cross divides, the table divides. It puts a visible difference between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world. Those who come to this table are saying, I need Christ. I trust Christ. I want Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me that I might belong to you. Feed me, Jesus, that I might walk with you. Don't come to this table if you aren't in faith saying something like that. And so it divides, it distinguishes, but it invites, and that's good news. So we have an unchanging Christ, we have a divisive 
cross and we have an abiding city, what are we supposed to do with all this? Notice verses 13 and 14. Therefore, verse 13, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, if you stand beneath the cross of Jesus, you are going to the place of his suffering. You might taste a bit of what he tasted in the sense of scorn, rejection, persecution, alienation from others, rejection by even the religious as he himself did. He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. These first hearers were risking in embracing Jesus, being rejected by family and friends and all the religious leaders they've known to date. He's saying, don't be afraid to be rejected by them too. They rejected your Savior before you. These Jewish Christians had to, had to conclude. They had to decide that they were willing to be seen as different than the Jews of their day, being willing to suffer reproach for believing in Jesus. And he says that you can't escape this. It's time for you, he's saying to them, to, to not worry about what those other people think of you, but go outside the camp of Judaism and stand beneath the cross of Jesus And be unashamed to own him. Be unashamed to say, I belong to him. I need him. He's my only hope. Don't be ashamed to suffer disgrace with him. And and it's a costly demand, no doubt, but it's inescapable. There's a fascinating Civil War story in 1861. Wilmer McLean was a farmer in northern Virginia. He owned a farm on a stream called Bull Run. And... uh, in the first battle of the Civil War, a cannonball came down through his chimney and into his fireplace and disturbed his dinner. And on account of that and the fact that there were soldiers from both sides of the war dying on his property, he decided that he would move his family to southern Virginia. And so he bought a place in southern Virginia to get away from the war. And then in April of 1865... Uh, as it happens, having bought a modest home in a place called Appomattox Courthouse, it just so happens that Grant and Lee uh, chose to meet in Wilmer McLean's parlor to be the place where they would come to their peace terms. Later, McLean is supposed to have said, the war began in my front yard and it ended in my front parlor. He couldn't get away. It was inescapable sooner or later you and I can't simply hide from embracing Jesus and owning our allegiance to him you've got to come out into the open you've got to say I need him and I want him and I look to him are you ashamed To own him. To own that you're a Christian. Are you afraid of suffering reproach for identifying with him? If so, you have at least two consolations here in just verses 13 and 14. Two consolations which can give you courage. The first in verse 13, you're simply following in your Savior's footsteps. He is ahead of you 
He went before you. He is not calling you to do anything he wasn't himself prepared to do. And that was to own who he is and be ridiculed, scorned, and even killed for doing so. And your other consolation is this. You have a better future. Verse 14. For here, he says, let us go out of the camp and bear the reproach of Jesus. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the one that is to come. If you think it is too great a price to pay, he says, would you remember that nothing here lasts? It's all transitory. It's not going to go on. Siloam Springs is not going to last forever in this world as it is. But we are, he says, seeking an enduring city. Not Jerusalem, but new Jerusalem. Brian Chapel tells the story of uh, Karen and her husband, Randy, two Christians. He was a seminary student, and she was uh, working full-time to help put him through seminary and put food on the table. And she was working in, in a pharmaceutical company as a quality control inspector. One day, there was a large order of syringes that a machine had produced, but a faulty procedure had been followed, and the order was contaminated. They failed her inspection report, and she reported that issue on to her boss. Now, the cost of reproducing that order would have been huge, and companies caring about money and not losing it, uh, someone ordered her to sign off on the inspection, but she wouldn't sign off on it. And so the company president came to visit her. To urge her to sign it. For she was the quality control inspector. She was the only one who could. And he said if your your job is at stake. If you don't do it. But of course for her it was more than just her job. Her husband was in school and seminary. How were they going to eat? So she had a choice. She had a decision to make. Would she let the values of that company. Decide what was right. Or would she follow and seek to live by the values of God's kingdom. They gave her a weekend to think it over. She refused and was fired. She was like Moses we read in Hebrews chapter 11, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, or for righteousness sake, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Later, the company that had placed the order heard what she had done and hired her and paid her more. You love a story when it turns out that way, don't you? It's nice to know for her sake it happened that way. Am I up here telling you that if you just follow the Lord and do what's right, own your allegiance to Jesus and his ways, that this world is going to reward you No, I am not saying that at all. There's not a promise that this world or some other company will pick you up and help you out. It will not always work out better for you in the here and in the now. But in the world which is to come, in the city which we are seeking, we will hear from our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant 
You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What kind of master is he? We're about to sing, Who is this? Behold him shedding drops of blood upon the ground. Who is this? Despised, rejected, mocked, insulted, beaten, bound. Tis our God who gifts and graces on his church is pouring down. Who for us and our salvation wore the cross before the crown. Who is this that hangs there dying while the rude world scoffs and scorns? Numbered with the malefactors, torn with nails, crowned with thorns? Tis our God. Who lives forever with the saints now raised on high. He who died for our transgressions. Who lives that death may die. You have a Christ. You have a cross. You have an abiding city. So trust in him. Go to him. And seek that city. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, grant that we would do so by the strength of the grace of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.